Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 510. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction, The Frost Giants Data by Dan Abnett, originally published in Cosmic Powers. Then it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history for the month of November. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. And as I mentioned there, it is November, and for us over in Blighty here, it is Guy Fawkes. It's just been Guy Fawkes night, and where I live in little northeast coast, little little village there, we we do the, the Guy Fawkes thing, but there's not the, the month-long, two-month-long run-up to Guy Fawkes with bangers going off and fireworks. Well, we used to live in Newcastle. In the kind of West End and Newcastle. It's just, I remember it, you know, every time this year, the time of year comes round, you know, I kind of hark back to those days. It was a bloody nightmare, man. The kids would get the kind of fireworks and the, and the bangers and everything like that. And literally a month before, you know what I mean? It was just like the bangs going off, man, through the night. All, you know, as soon as it was getting dark, you know, the four o'clock, five o'clock mark, there's just the all over the place, you know what I mean? Where we live there now, it's like, it's very silent, very quiet, and that's the way we like it. <laughs> Before we just get into that main story there, don't forget, if you want to listen to these shows... Oh, 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 it's the wife. <laughs> Have you done the dishes? Um, almost the professional. You know, I just... <laughs> That's for tea. That's what the bloody thing is. Hey, right. So, before we get into this story, just a, a heads up, a reminder that we do now on Patreon, if you want to listen to these shows without adverts, the option is there. You can go and subscribe over there on Patreon, just little payments each month. There is certain levels, and I think maybe $1. Let's just have a look, actually. It is. $2 a month gets you ad-free shows on Starship Sova. $3 a month gets you the ad-free Starship Sovas and the show that I'm just starting off called Return to Smegville. Looking back at everything, each show of Red Dwarf. Then we're doing it £5 a month. We're doing the kind of classic science fiction books where I'm going to turn into a serial format. So, And there's other rewards as well there. But if you want... To, no ads in your shows. Two dollars, should I say. Silly money. The RSS will be in the show notes and a link over there to Patreon. So anyways, let's get to the main fiction. Today's story is The Frost Giant's Data by Dan Abnett. Originally published, like I said, in Cosmic Powers. Dan Abnett is a seven times New York Times bestselling author and award-winning comic book writer. He has written over 50 novels, including the acclaimed Gaunt's Ghost series and the Eisenhorn Cycle volumes of the million-selling Horace Hersey series, The Silent Stars Go By, Doctor Who, Rocket Raccoon and Groot, Steal the Galaxy. 
In comics, his 2008 run on Guardians of the Galaxy formed the inspiration for the blockbuster movies. A regular contributor to the UK's long-running 2000 AD, he is the creator of the series Brink, Grey Area, Lawless, Kingdom and the classic Sinister Dexter. He has also written extensively for the games industry, including Shadow of Mordor and Alien Isolation. He is currently the writer on Aquaman, The Titans and The Silencer for DC Comics. Dan lives and works in the UK and you can follow him at Vincent Abnett on Twitter. Story is narrated by the one and only Mr. Roberto Suarez. By dear, Roberto works as a community college student advocate and recruiter. By night, he geeks out on all things fantasy and science fiction, comic books and board games. He is the co-host and producer of A Pod of Casts, the Game of Thrones podcast and the new Radio Westworld, a podcast dedicated to HBO's latest science fiction series. You can find Roberto on the web at robertosuarez.me or on Twitter. Puerto Rico Gigan. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Frost Giant's Data by Dan Abnett. It was the first time Dwyer had been back to Knox since it built the place. Built it tight so no one could get in. Now he was coming back at 73 times the speed of light. Wake up, he said, and the clones woke. He watched them closely, monitoring their startup patterns. They blinked, writhed blindly, and gulped like newborns in their bags as the amniotex drained out. He'd asked for eight, and the clients had sourced five for him. One of them, an ex-shockware unit that had probably been sloughed too many times, was having febrile convulsions, and its stats were tanking. He shut it down. Four. He'd have to manage with four. The clones had cost a lot to procure. The clones and the fight wear. The ship had cost more. The clients hadn't bought the ship. It was a borrow. But even borrowing an inter-system package ship had put a dent the size of Mara Imbrium in the mission budget. And bribing an ITA official to certify its eight-parsec detour had cost ten times that. The detour wasn't much, just a little wobble in the package ship's routine monthly mail run, just a little jink that put it in viable photon-sling range of Knox. A four-hour range window, four clone tag bodies, Dwyer's insider knowledge. Put together, it might do the trick. There was a lot writing on it. The clients had been crystal about that. Dwyer flopped into the velocity cot he'd been nesting in since the packet ship launched. Eight days' worth of squeezed-out juice meals lay scattered on the deck around it. The air smelled of oranges. A twitch of his fingers happed it up a data ray, and he brushed through the images hanging in the air. He knew it all. He knew it backwards. He snapped his fingers and centered an image of Knox, enhanced for visual and overlaid with specs a black orb, a cold, dead heart, out in the middle of nowhere at all, bothering no one. If anyone could crack it open and get at the meat, it was him. He'd built it. Not the structure. Indentured formoid constructors had hollowed out the crust and machine-drilled the subsurface vaults. Some of the stacks were 18 miles deep. Lucian Vironiers in cryohazard armor had installed the immense climate vanes. Knox was stabilized at about nine points off absolute Z. The whole contract had been financed by a property development conglom out of Kuiper City. Dwyer had been hired towards the end of the project to design the security package. He'd named his own price, and he'd done his best work. At Dwyer's level of the game, you didn't leave back doors. That kind of sentimental disregard for comprehensive security architecture got you fired and never hired again. Just because he'd built it didn't mean he'd left a way in. Besides, the architecture was fluid. He designed it to evolve. By definition, 
It wasn't the beast he created anymore. But he knew how that evolution was supposed to work. That was his edge. That was what the clients were counting on. On completion, Bonnock's development had been bought outright by the Frost Giant. Huge payday for the Kuiper boys. The Frost Giant had made Knox one of his primary data claves, a storage facility for the currency that had made him the richest man in the spiral arm. The data rate pinged. The window was about to open. Dwyer hoisted himself up. Time to go. He ejected from the ship, just him, riding a thrust rig. Boosted Photon Sling, superluminal. He'd routed the data ray feed to retinal display, and it crowded his vision with furious info streams. He couldn't see Nox anyway, only black on black. As expected, the Nox AI had seen the packet ship and queried its close approach. Routine handshakes, clearing codes, the ITA approval seemed like a reasonable excuse. The Intersystem Transit Authority was famously clean. Dwyer was infinitely smaller than the mile-long mass of the packet ship, just a human body plus the super-light thruster rig, no bigger than an atmospheric drone or a piece of debris. The AI would spot him, but it would dismiss him as dust or an asteroidal cannoned out by the packet's wake or an imaging artifact. He jinked his trajectory with a randomizer. The extra distance of the erratic course would eat his time, but the upside was it would take the AI much longer to recognize him as a deliberately approaching contact rather than a speck of crap spinning past. Photon sling was no way to travel. The vibration was a bitch. His teeth hurt. There was blood in his sinuses. Dwyer had borrowed velocity from the packet ship and amped it with thrust from the superlight rig. He had saved reserve energy for course correction burns plus decel, and hoped it was enough. It would suck to discover it wasn't once he was diving headfirst towards an artificially cooled rock the size of Mercury. Eight minutes. He passed out four times. The derm sensors monitoring his vitals felt him gray away each time and flooded his body with stims that woke him like a slap in the face. I'm awake, he growled, tasting bitter metal and chemicals. He could make out the hard blue shadow of Knox rushing up against the starfield. It was still, pretty much nothing in nothing, an eclipsed eclipse, a whisper in a noisy hall. There was a faint halo of luminescence, thin as an arced chalk line, where the light of the starfield bent in Knox's thin atmosphere. His retinal display flickered. The AI had noticed him and was taking an interest. Finally, buddy. Took your sweet time. Soft pass scans flooded his way. He was being analyzed. Mass and composition assays. Trajectory analysis. Dwyer had about seven seconds before the AI recognized pattern and intention in his randomized course. He prepared to light the thruster rig for the final burn and dump the fusion mine. It would go off like a small sun. Big, shiny noise. Maximum distraction. An autosnipe turret on Nox's polar highlands woke up and pinked off a single Tychian hyperkinetic. Dwyer had no time to curse, no time to register disappointment, no time to even feel paternal pride that his AI-governed architecture had evolved so finely it had cut the target pattern recognition time down to three seconds. The impact mashed him and the rig into a molecular fog. The hyperkinetic round touched off the fusion mine. A star winked on and off, hard, bright, and painful to look at. Nox's perceptor arrays damped protectively, rebooted, and retrained, focusing their attention on the patch of space now occupied by a radioactive heat bloom and a vapor of organic debris. Dwyer watched the distraction with satisfaction. He had expected to have to sacrifice the first clone tack body. He was impressed the AI had caught it so fast. At the moment of body death, the Gestalter engine on the packet ship had saved his crashed consciousness and reinstalled it in the skull of the second tack body, which was now executing a burn approach on the far side of Nox. This combat lone tactical body happened to be female. 
It felt fragile now that he inhabited it, though Dwyer knew they were all built to the same level of mill-grade durability. Besides, he was too busy vomiting. Micro-drains and his faceplates sucked the fluid out fast. His lone organs hurt. Point-of-death save and installs were high-trauma experiences. Military specialists took a mandatory eight months' leave to recover from emergency gestalter saves in the field. No such luxury for him. Stims rushed him again, brought him up, made him sharp. This tack body would be ready for scrap after the stress he was running it through. He had toxins in his muscles and his blood, necrosis, organ damage. He felt like shit. His ret feed updated. More auto snipes were waking up, their mac gray mushroom domes rising from the powdered dust of the equatorial plains. Dwyer had insisted on installing the best. Maxima Grand Gauss automatic marksman assemblies, graph stabilized, mounted with Kemperer weapon suites, all slaved to the AI. For a target as close and fast as he was, they would select fluid dynamic prediction algorithms. That's how he'd programmed them anyway. Had they evolved? Had they been upgraded or reset? He was counting on no. He had switched the drivers of his superlight rig to execute an anti-Mandelbrot recursive descent, embellished with some randomizer jink turns he'd copied from watching the flight patterns of butcher wasps on Kreis. The snipes started firing. Hyperkinetics. Jacketed photonics. From somewhere around the curve of the horizon, a sniper cannon started to cut the sky apart with hard beam ripper shots. Dwyer evaded. Bonnach's AI hadn't had to ward off this kind of invasive approach much in its lifetime, so it hadn't evolved new ways of doing it. Its targeting protocols were as box-fresh as the day he'd loaded them. Redfeed gave him six possible landfalls. He selected the closest. The sky wasn't somewhere you wanted to be any longer than you had to. He triggered the auto-release that would shed the heart-burning rig and allow him to soar clear. It failed. Fired it again. Fail. The AI was jamming electronic signals. There was a manual release for the thruster rig, but that fact was moot. You clever bastard, he thought, in the nanosecond before he hit the surface at three times the speed of light. You want me to... What? Stop the peace accord? Dwyer asked. No... No, Mr. Dwyer, not precisely, Oliphant had replied. We want to inspect the treaty details, with a view towards stopping it. They had taken a stealth table in a restaurant overlooking the Bay of Naples. The view was magnificent. No one outside even knew they were there. Open war could become protracted and cause massive damage to the sodality's economy. Hurting your business, asked Dwyer, which is... Oliphant smiled. He was a small man with big ideas and a very patient voice. Concerned parties within the sodality believe the peace accord could have unforeseen consequences. Don't get me wrong. The war would be bad. The war would damage the economy, perhaps beyond the point of recovery. Mr. Dwyer, the sodality is the greatest expression of human civilization, a truly galactic superculture. It behooves us to take its survival very seriously. Right. Dwyer nodded. So stopping a war with the Ushans seems to be a good idea. Indeed. Oliphant raised his wine glass, but did not drink. A vastly smaller culture than ours, numerically insignificant. But total fuckers when it comes to a fight. Oliphant shrugged. They are tenacious. And ferocious. Their mindset is one of absolutes. They will fight until they die, or until they wound us so badly we bleed out. That's been predicted since first contact, said Dwyer. 
which is why this chance of a peace agreement is so precious, that the Ushans even consider negotiation. The treaty will be signed in fifty days, said Oliphant. We want to make sure that what our leaders are signing is actually peace. Because, asked Dwyer, the treaty is four trillion words long. It has taken 19 years of negotiation through diplomatic back channels. It was framed to allow for all eventualities and in consideration at their specific request of the Ushans' absolute attention to detail. The complex particulars of the document form the foundation for any hope of lasting peace. Fifty percent of it is written in Ushan. Are you suggesting they've slipped something into the fine print? Yes, said Oliphant. Shit, I was joking. No joke. We welcome peace, but the nuance of the Ushan terms may encode something unacceptable, something that will defeat the sodality more completely than open military action. So you want to look at the document? We do. It is confidential. We will pay highly for the privilege. Where is it? asked Dwyer. The only copy is sequestered in a hyper-secure data storage clave, watched over by an independent custodian. We have learned the location. Who's this custodian? asked Dwyer. He suddenly had a sense of foreboding. Daryl Durant, said Oliphant. The data baron? The frost giant, said Dwyer. Yes. The treaty. It's stored on Knox, isn't it? Yes, Mr. Dwyer. Now I understand why you're talking to me. It had not been a clean landing. Dwyer had broken some ribs and at least two fingers. The Gestalter engine had saved and switched him into the third clone about 30 seconds after it had made planetfall on Knox. He got up, unsteady. Steal a piece of treaty from the most secure vault in the sodality, he thought. Stop a peace, start a war. Not exactly the heroic destiny Dwyer had hoped for himself, but Oliphant had been convincing. There were nobility and duty in it. If Oliphant and his fellow clients were right, and Dwyer was successful, it would lead to a war that would cost billions of lives. And that would be preferable. A win. High cliffs of black rock and blue ice towered over him. He was standing on the lip of one of the thermal canyons. He could see the monumental white phantom shapes of the cryoveins. Data was hot. The amount of data stored and protected by the frost giant generated enough heat bleed to stoke a sun. That's why he required specialist holding claves like Knox, sculpted for maximum heat dispersal, cryocooled to nigh on absolute Z. The giant's specialization in ultra-cold storage had earned him his nickname. Knox was cold as hell and loaded to the brim. Not to mention out of the way discreet, hard to find or reach, and defended up the yin-yang. Dwyer was the best security architect in the sodality. He was not a field agent, but he knew Knox like no one else. And he had made it to the surface wearing a synthetically reinforced tack body that was hardwired with the instincts and reactions of a special forces operative. Three of four. His margin of error was narrowing. His window was closing. He set off at a jog. The canyon lip would take him to the base of Vein 7, and from there he could gain access to the local service shafts. As he ran, he unsacked his sidearm from the pouch on the front of his suit. Clutching it made him feel more comfortable. The skeletal service walkways were fitted for heat, motion, and vibration. Frost clogged the handrails of the spacer grills. 
Dwyer wondered if anyone had walked on them since the day he'd finished his work and taken one last look around. Dwyer kept to the rock, though it was sheeted with ice and treacherous. Thermal pads in the soles of his boots fought each step he took and increased his purchase. His ribs hurt. Attack body must have hit the ground damn hard. There was a supply port in the silo above the service shafts. That was Dwyer's entry point of choice. He knew for a fact that there were six auto-sentry modules in the area. He jogged a route that expertly snaked him between all of their perceptor cones. He had gotten within 60 meters of the port when the Slayborg arrived. The first he saw of it was a howling maw full of stainless steel teeth coming at him like a runaway train. Dwyer had placed Slayborgs in the lower levels in his original design, mostly for mechanized patrol and perimeter checks. He hadn't put any on the surface. Was this evolution, or was this the frost giant tinkering with the design? It didn't matter. What mattered was that there was one in his face. What also mattered was that the slayborgs he had installed down below had been security-grade units, the basic, highly efficient super trooper model built by Teximiles out of Lair's Hub. He'd bulk-bought 10,000 of them. This wasn't a super trooper with a bland, goofy face and khaki plating. This was battlefield grade, a coin munitions berserker model, huge and feral. It lunged at him. Its reach was six times his, and its talons were like sabers. He let the clone body's instincts take over and evaded hard, puffing up a spray of ice crystals. A nice dodge, but the berserker was fast. It wheeled and ripped at him. It was trailing loose cables and rubber pipework from its snout, so it looked shaggy, like some emaciated, dreadlocked bear. No eyes. The perceptors were down in its armored chest. It lashed out. He tucked and rolled. The slayborg's knife fingers gouged out pack ice and rock like a backhoe. Dwyer rolled again, the opposite way. Rime covered his faceplate. His red feed was flashing him hazards that he either didn't need to know or were spectacularly obvious. Blades came down at him like ice picks and broke the ground like glass. He aimed his sidearm. It was a steel-framed tactical assault pistol firing jacketed photonics, a 760 white liger manufactured by coin munitions, just like the Slayborg. There was some pleasing irony in that. Three rapid shots smacked the charging Slayborg onto its ass, as though it had run into a clothesline. It got up, leaking syrupy fluid from its blast-distorted jawline and cranium. Dwyer's red feed tight-targeted the rumpled plating above the Berserker's perceptor array, and he put two more rounds into the hole. The Slayborg blew out. The power cells in its armored thorax lit off, and its abdomen vanished in a fireball blossom. The hazards kept flashing. Rising, Dwyer saw two more Berserkers bounding over the ice towards him like galloping simians. He stood his ground, and put four shots into the nearest one, dropping it in a fountain of fluid while it was still ten meters away. He switched to the second. Three shots didn't stop it. The fourth round dropped it, but it got up again. The fifth and sixth went down its slavering mouth and exploded its spine. The slayborg Dwyer hadn't seen ran him down from behind. He thought he'd been swiped by a truck. A blade finger stabbed him to his back. He felt every centimeter of it go in felt it slice his liver and shred his intestines. It picked him up like a fish in a skewer and shook him. Dwyer screamed. His faceplate was full of blood. He fired wildly. The thing dropped him. Dwyer flopped over, leaking steam and blood. Trauma was overloading the tack body systems. Stim supplies emptied into his bloodstream. The slayborg was on him. It crunched off his left hand and spat it out. Dwyer fired point-blank. The pain intensified. It was eating him alive. Save and switch. He loaded into the fourth tack body, bringing the ghost of atrocious pain along with him. A shock so hard, the clone staggered and the stims kicked in again. Dwyer could barely think. The successive traumas were going to drive him insane. He'd placed the fourth tack body last in the running order, where he thought he'd need it the most. It was a tank form, engineered for frontline duty, the only heavy-grade clone in the batch the clients had sourced. It was built like a nose tackle on steroids. 
Its brute solidity and trauma compensation package soothed him to a whimper and regulated his vitals. He was standing on the ridge above the supplying port, tears streaming down his face. He had a composite armor exosuit with a reflective bronze finish, a backshine hyperkinetic carbine, and an unused fusion mine. Below him, the crippled Slayborg was dismembering his still-screaming former self. Dwyer shouldered the carbine, took aim, and put a hyperkinetic round through the head of his previous body. In the pink mist, the Slayborg glanced around and saw him. And fuck you too, said Dwyer. He fired again and turned the Slayborg into a cloud of meat. Waste of a round, but the satisfaction was worth it. He started to run, enjoying the increased speed and ground coverage of the new tack. He checked the data ray. One hour left on the range window, and he was down to his last deployable tack body. That was disappointing. He'd burned through time and resources more quickly than he had anticipated. The auto sentries were whirring around. Screw them. Like they didn't know there was an uninvited guest. He lobbed the mine. It landed smack on the supply port. This tank clone had a good arm. The blast took out the armored shutter of the port in a blizzard of metal shards and wrecked the support gantry. It slumped, groaning and creaking. The auto sentries began to fire. Ice flaked and spat at his heels. Dwyer leapt headlong into the flames. He fell down the service shaft that the blast had uncapped. The walls rushed past. It was a two-mile drop. The tack body knew how to control itself in freefall. It had made halo jumps before. The base of the shaft was rushing up at him. He triggered the grav pod strapped to the small of his back and floated down the last 20 meters like a feather. Service hatch. He ripped the plating off with his fingers and stabbed in a data hack. The tool buzzed as it bit into the instructor systems. Identify. Hatch operation functions. Hatch operation. Seal hatch in event of attack. Reverse instruction. Confirm instruction. Verify situation. Attack underway. Initiate function. The hatch opened. Dwyer stepped through. Trick of the trade. He wondered if he would ever have been hired if people realized how simple a walkaround could be. Security architecture was pretty much impossible to break or override. But if you got in underneath, at the instruction level, and simply reversed the instruction order, the system thought it was doing what it was supposed to do, and didn't argue back. The halls were lofty and dim. Frost coated every surface. His footsteps sounded dull and flat. Infilling at vein 7 put him close to stack 60, so the recovery room there was the nearest. Hazard Flash Dwyer swung up and picked the super trooper off one of the overhead walkways before it could tag him. Two more appeared, drawing aim. Scary fast, he tracked the carbine and punched off their heads, one after the other. He started active hunting via the carbine scope as he advanced. Three more slayborgs came into range. He felled them with a burst of rapid, and they sprayed metal and plastic fragments as they shredded. He plugged another through the throat with a single round, and it collapsed, head bowed as if in prayer. The massive iris hatch of the recovery room was wide open. The room was vast and domed. Thirty ornate seats were arranged in a circle, like a clock face, around a central data ray system. Only one of the positions was active. Data shimmered in the cold, misty air above the station. Is this what you're looking for? The tack body was standing near the operational station. It was a heavy-grade clone like the one he was wearing, but it was brand new. And the motel skin armor encasing it was polished chrome, fancy and expensive, this year's model. It made his army surplus cast-off feel shabby and soiled. Mr. Durant, said Dwyer, I didn't think you'd be here in person. Of course, said the frost giant through the tack body's mouth. With something this important, I like to mind it myself. My whole business and reputation are based upon my level of service, and this is a very special case. 
The tack body took a step forward. Speaking of reputations, it said, I'm very disappointed in you, Mr. Dwyer. You know it's me? Of course. Who else could get this far? I recognized you by your approach. And your poor mind's been flying around a lot today from body to body. That's given me plenty of time to process and match your brain patterns. I pity you, by the way, the frost giant added. You must be feeling wretched. All that trauma. I doubt you'll ever be quite the same again. I'll survive, said Dwyer. No, you won't. Not in any way. I've known you were coming here for weeks. Information, my friend. It's what I do. It's the most powerful commodity there is. I've known about your mission since you were hired. I know who your clients are. I know what their concerns are. The framing of the treaty. If, Dwyer began, you knew I was coming, why? It was a wonderful opportunity to run an active test of my security architecture. I've already devised a number of new countermeasures and system evolutions that will make sure this never happens again. So, thank you for that. Good of you to provide aftercare service. Dwyer shrugged. He went to the circle, chose a seat at random, and sat down. What happens now? he asked. Behind its gleaming visor, the frost giant smiled with the face it was using. Well, it said, you've got six minutes before the packet ship moves out of range. After that, it'll be too far away for you to save back to the Gestalter engine. Your body will be out there, on a mailboat, and your mind will be stuck here. It will die along with that clone you're loaded into. Six minutes, said Dwyer. A lot can happen in six minutes. He snatched up the carbine and fired. The frost giant was already moving, a blur. The hyper-round clipped it and spanked away into the far wall, but even the glancing impact was enough to spin the hurtling tack body clean off its feet. It smashed into the station, crumpling a console and wrecking one of the chairs. Dwyer was on his feet. The frost giant, a gruesome blister of blackened metal and cooked meat marring the sleek chrome lines of its shoulder armor, tackled him hard. They crashed over together. Another ornate seat was demolished. Dwyer punched a giant in the side of the head and cracked its visor. The frost giant rolled clear and delivered a spin kick that carried Dwyer clear across the reading station. He bounced off the edge and hit the floor. The frost giant kicked the fallen carbine away across the frosty deck, picked up Dwyer, and slammed him into a chamber wall. Dwyer mashed his elbow into the giant's face, then punched it in the sternum. He heard bone shear. The giant fell back. Released, Dwyer dropped to the deck. He kicked the giant off its knees and stood over it. The frost giant looked up at Dwyer. Through its broken, blood-flecked faceplate, it smiled. Your time is up, it said. I know, said Dwyer. The packet ship has moved out of range. I know. Dwyer looked around. The room was slowly and quietly filling with super troopers. Their weapons were leveled at him. So, are they wrong? Dwyer asked. Oliphant and the others. Are they wrong about the treaty? No, Durant replied. It wrenched off its helmet and spat blood. The treaty is brilliantly engineered. The Ushans are very methodical. The peace agreement requires full alliance with the Ushans and Ushan participation in the administration of government. 
if you think they were a military menace. Just wait to see how they exert influence and power from within the Sodality legislature. David has killed Goliath. A long and bloody war would have cost the Sodality less. You knew this, all this, and you protected the information. That's what I do, Mr. Dwyer. My reputation depends on it. They paid you? The frost giant shook his head. Only in information. In exchange for my services, I become designated custodian of the entire Ushan cultural archive. Sole custodian. My claves become true treasure houses. I will possess a data resource unparalleled in human or Ushan space. Not just the richest being in the spiral arm, the most powerful. Durant heaved his stack body to its feet. A giant, truly, it smiled. Dwyer shrugged. Information is precious, he said. Durant, what's the active save and restore range of a Gestalter engine? You know that well enough, Dwyer. It is a range your male boat has long since exceeded. But say I ejected an active Gestalt base unit from the packet when I launched my clones. It would still be in range, wouldn't it? Easily. And still in range of the ship, too. For another 18 minutes. Durant's reply was incoherent. The slayborgs began firing and didn't stop until Dwyer's fourth tack body was a liquefied sludge coating the recovery room's wall. Dwyer opened his eyes. Redfeet told him he had been down for 16 hours, and in that time his heart had stopped on nine separate occasions. The packet ship's metborgs were bending over him. He'd be sick from the stims for years. The multiple save traumas would probably never leave him. He got up in his own flesh. The medborgs tried to persuade him to lie back, but he waved them off. He opened a fast-link messenger blank. It would take two days to reach its destination. It would still arrive before the packet ship. He selected Oliphant from his recipient list with a haptic flick. Then, in the open pane, his fingers touching nothing but light, he began to compose a message telling his client that he'd stopped the peace and started a war, and was now leaving Knox at 73 times the speed of light. Somehow, that didn't feel fast enough. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Dan's. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you indeed. And Roberto, what can I say? Fine chops on you there, lad. Thank you. So, guess what up now? It's Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello, friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And ooh, I have some interesting stuff for you today. In the last two months, our understanding of science fiction history, particularly Hugo Awards history, has changed, and I'm going to tell you how. Now, I know that many of you are aware that the Hugo Awards are given by the World Science Fiction Society every year at uh, Worldcon, and as such, because they have been given since 1953, Every year since 1955, they are the longest-running and one of the most respected awards in science fiction. And you may also know, of course, that Starship Sofa became the first podcast to win a Hugo Award in 2010. Yay! So, what I'd like to talk to you about today is some new information about Hugo Awards history. Well, new in historians' terms. It's new since September 2017. Well, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the 1956 Hugo Awards. 
Now, we know who won those awards. For example, the novel Double Star by Robert Heinlein, one of his very best, won Best Novel. Best Novelette went to Exploration Team by Murray Leinster. Best Short Story, one of the most anthologized, I do believe, The Star by Arthur C. Clarke. I won't go through every category, but I will mention that there is a category for 1956 that we don't have today. We don't even have any parallel to it today, and that is Best Book Reviewer. We do have categories like Best Fan Writer, but Best Book Reviewer is something different because you weren't required to be doing it for free. In fact, you could be writing professionally to be Best Book Reviewer. That award went to Damon Knight in 1956. And lastly, Most Promising New Author went to Robert Silverberg in 1956. And the list of winners of the 1956 Hugo Awards has for some time been really all we had to tell us about the Hugos of 1956. Why? Because the ballot for the 1956 Hugos was lost. So this was something of a mystery. And different genre critics have tried their hand at extrapolating from what they knew of 1955 publications and coming up with what they think might be possible lists of works that could have been finalists for the Hugo Awards. But all that changed in September. In September 2017, Olaf Rockne announced that he was going through the 1956 Worldcon Progress Report number three. And on page 15 of that progress report, what did he find? But the final ballot of the 1956 Hugo Awards. The nominees in 1956 were chosen by members of the 1956 Worldcon Committee. They weren't chosen the way they're chosen now, which is from an initial round of nominations solicited from all the members of the World Science Fiction Society. But now, now that we know what those finalists, who those finalists were, well, it changes our understanding of Hugo, and for that matter, science fiction history. How so? Well, let me start with best novel. The other finalists for the Hugo were Call Him Dead by Eric Frank Russell, The End of Eternity by Isaac Asimov, Not This August by Cyril Kornbluth, and The Long Tomorrow by Lee Brackett. Lee Brackett deserves her own segment, note to self, Sturgis, she was a remarkable writer of science fiction and lots of other things. And The Long Tomorrow, which was published in 1955, a book I quite like, is a post-apocalyptic dystopian story of an agrarian technophobic society that develops in the wake of a nuclear holocaust. Very much worth reading. So beyond the fact that Lee Brackett was a great writer and The Long Tomorrow is a very worthy novel, why should you care? Well, this discovery of the ballot is important because it means that Lee Brackett was the first woman finalist for the best novel Hugo in Hugo history. Now, if you read Joe Walton's Revisiting the Recently Rediscovered 1956 Hugo Awards Ballot article on Tour.com, you'll see that she's very excited, and rightly so, about this historic nomination. Walton goes on to say, This is the first time a woman was nominated for a best novel Hugo, or indeed any Hugo. Well, that is partially right and partially wrong. Why? Because if you continue looking down the ballot at the 1956 finalists, you'll also find the best novelette category. Besides Exploration Team, which won, there is A Gun for Dinosaur by El Sprague de Camp, Brightside Crossing by Alan Norse, Legwork by Eric Frank Russell, The Assistant Self by F.L. Wallace, The End of Summer by Algis Boudris, Who by Theodore Sturgeon, and Home There's No Returning, 
by Henry Cutner and C. L. Moore. Henry Cutner and C. L. Moore were one of the powerhouse duos of science fiction, husband and wife, and C. L. Moore was Catherine Lucille Moore. So Catherine Lucille Moore shares the first woman nominated for a Hugo distinction with Lee Brackett. The Moore Cutner partnership is a fascinating one, uh, worthy of its own segment. Note to self, Sturgis, getting a lot of ideas here. And in fact, they were introduced to each other uh, by their mutual friend who thought they would hit it off, H.P. Lovecraft, and together they are responsible for some really remarkable works. And now, again, history is made in the 1956 ballot. So we could say the first two women nominated for a Hugo. But wait, there is more, because this find is the gift that keeps on giving. If you look further down the list, there is the category of best fanzine. And wow, what a category. The winner of the 1956 Hugo was Inside and Science Fiction Advertiser, which was edited by Ron Smith. Other finalists include Abba, Fantasy Times, Hyphen, Oblique, Peon, Psychotic SF Review, Skyhook, and Gru. Gru is G-R-U-E, FYI. And Gru was edited by Peggy Nadramia. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that last name. I've only seen it written. I haven't heard it spoken. But that makes Peggy in another woman nominated for the Hugo in 1956. So that first woman nominated for a Hugo distinction goes three ways in this particular ballot. Pretty impressive stuff. One other particularly noteworthy aspect of the ballot is the Best New Author Award. Or, to be more precise, it was called Most Promising New Author. Robert Silverberg, long career in science fiction, a career of distinction. On the face of things, sure, that seems like a good choice. But wow, <laughs> it turns out that Robert Silverberg was up against Harlan Ellison. Yes, that Harlan Ellison. And wait, there's more. Frank Herbert. Yes, the father of Dune was on this ballot as well. So, ah, if I had seen the whole ballot, that, that's a more difficult choice. New authors, they surely did know how to pick them in 1956. And then there's a fourth name, a fourth finalist, Henry Still. Who is Henry Still? Well, yes, you see the point there. That's a question that has been asked ever since this ballot came to light. He certainly didn't have the career of a Frank Herbert, Harlan Ellison, or Robert Silverberg. But then again, really, who does? In fact, the Camistros Philepton website published Who the Heck Was Henry Still? A Philepton Towers Special Investigation. The investigation, I should note, is still ongoing. But here is what was discovered. The Internet Speculative Fiction Database lists 10 stories by Henry Still, most of which, that's eight of the 10, were published between 1955 and 1956, and some in some quite good publications like If and Amazing. And if you're interested, it's worth checking out the Henry Still entry in the Internet Speculative Fiction Database online because some of these stories are also online. And you can have a read and then decide if Henry Still is sort of a lost genius who might have gone on to be a Silverberg, Ellison, or Herbert. Or, you know, not. Still seems to disappear from the science fiction scene after that, although it is possible that the Henry Still, who was a co-author of Starfall, a 1974 biography of astronaut Gus Grissom by his wife Betty, may be the same Henry Still. There are a lot of holes left in his story, obviously, so if you are looking to do some sleuthing and you want to tackle a 20th century science fiction mystery, well, the story of Henry Still may be for you. 
And of course, if you happen to have any insights on the story behind Henry Still, by all means, shout them out because lots of people would like to find out that information and make our understanding of science fiction history even more complete. And speaking of making our understanding of genre history more complete, I'm really excited by this game changer of a 1956 Hugo Awards ballot, and I hope you have enjoyed hearing more about what it reveals. If you'd like to check out the ballot for yourself, you can find it at thehugoawards.org/hugo-history/slash 1956. Dash Hugo Dash Awards, and I look forward to joining you again very soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. Ah,、uh, thank you, Amy. Thank you indeed. Getting ready for Christmas now. I know actually the October month. If anyone was following over, it was Amy's. That's Amy's best month. <laughs> All lead up to October, and I will. I read Amy's posts and everything like that because. Right from the beginning of October, all the way up to kind of Halloween night, Amy puts out like a post and does it each year. And Amy, that's a job and a half, man. Anyway, <laughs> well done. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like I say, if you want these shows ad free, pop over to Patreon. There's links there, and there's the RSS feed, so you can kind of put it in your podcaster of choice, and you know, get the shows just like this podcast. Anyways, and this one, this actual show will go about twenty four hours earlier.、Mm-hmm. Until next week, just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Get out there by and by.